Thank you so much for your music. Um, it was a real blessing to all of us. I want to welcome everybody here this morning. I'm very overwhelmed by your presence. I want to thank all of you that worked so hard to put this morning together. I want to thank the uh, Williams and uh, all of you, the Fleechecks, the uh, Olsons, the Palmers. So many of you made this happen. Brian Beers, all of you here, you're a real blessing to me, and I'm overwhelmed. I know this seems very strange being in this building. It's very odd for me as well, but I just want to tell all of you here that I love you. I'm excited to preach the Word of God to you. And I want to be a, a body that's, again, dedicated to preaching and teaching the Word. Amen. So with that, notice the message that I have for you this morning. And by the way, can everybody see in the front here? Can you see the PowerPoint as well? The uh, message I have for you is the incarnation and our hope. And I think this is a very important message in light of the very trying times that we've all been through as a congregation, but also as Americans. I want you to think about what we went through last month, an election that did not go our way. We have a lot of people in our congregation that have fallen ill. We think about our own Bob DeWay dealing with very serious illness. And all of these things have piled up on us. And so I know this seems to be a very dark time. But the risk for us is that in the midst of this darkness, that somehow you and I would lose sight of the grand hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's what I'm going to be focusing on here this morning. As we celebrate Christmas, I'm going to be focusing on two aspects of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That is our resurrection and future glory, all because God chose to send his son, a little baby in the manger, some 2,000 years ago. And so I want to begin by talking about what hope is. Hope in the New Testament is far different than what we understand hope to be in our day and age. For instance, as Americans, we use this term hope with a sense of contingency or perhaps you might even say uncertainty. How many of you have said, I hope the Vikings win today? <laughs> Bad chance of that happening, right? <laughs> I hope my child does well in school. I hope I don't get audited by the IRS. So we as Americans use hope with a degree of uncertainty. But what I want you to see is that in the New Testament, the biblical writers used the hope concerning the promises of God in an assured way. In fact, here is the definition. The term that's used is el peace. That's the Greek term 51 times it is used in the New Testament concerning hope. And it is an assured trust and confidence in the promises of God based on God's character. All right? I want you to think about that. The promises that we have for the future resurrection are a 100% certainty. Why? Because they are based on the assured nature of God's character. He has promised these things to us, and therefore they will happen. That's why 2 Timothy 2.13, it says that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. So God will be faithful to bring these promises about. Now, I want you to see that the understanding of hope that you and I should have is not only a certain hope that you and I are heading towards resurrection, but this hope is absolutely essential to the gospel itself. Not so says Eric Dalma, but so says the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says to those that call aside in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard, in the word of truth, the gospel. 
Now, dear ones, notice a couple of terms on the screen here, both the faith and the love. Paul is thanking God for the faith that these Colossian Christians have and also their love for all the saints. And those two items, both faith and love, are essential to the identity of a Christian. Think about it. You and I cannot be called Christians unless we first have saving faith. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith. Think about love. Love is an essential attribute and characteristic of a believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that if he could speak with the tongue of men and angels yet did not love, he was no better than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And so both the faith and the love are integral to our identity as Christians. And yet notice Paul says that they are both contingent and dependent upon hope. And that's grammatically what he says. Notice the underlined there. It says, because of the hope. That's why we have faith. That's why we have love. It's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And where did we have this hope taught to us? It was in the gospel. And my point in saying that then is, if you and I have a gospel that doesn't have a promise for a future resurrection and eternal glory, it's not the true gospel. And therefore, we really can't have faith and therefore, we really won't end up loving our brothers and sisters. So yes, our hope that we have is assured, but it's also absolutely essential that we have this hope for glory. And so that's what I want to focus on with you this morning. This great hope that we have, all because, again, God sent a little baby boy into a manger some 2,000 years ago. So with that, let me go to our hope in the incarnation. This is where we're going to be going this morning. I have two big applications for us the first is that we can rejoice in the hope of our inheritance because god has sent his firstborn into the world to secure our status as his sons and daughters now what i'm going to unpack before you is that jesus christ is regarded as the firstborn and therefore he has all of the inheritance and therefore if you and i will trust in him the inheritance belongs to us as well and you and I should absolutely revel in having that kind of hope. Second, I want to focus on this. We can also rejoice in the assured hope that Jesus is the sovereign king, no matter what our circumstances look like today. I want to bring you back to the first Christmas. In 4 BC, the circumstances that those first believers had to deal with were very trying. Think about it. The Romans had overrun the entire promised land. They were ruling over the promised land. We had Herod the king. He was a brutal dictator. In fact, he even murdered a bunch of children in Bethlehem. And for all intents and purposes, it seemed that these malevolent dictators were those who had all the power and that they were sovereign. But in the midst of that, there was a little baby boy, a descendant of Jacob born in a manger. And the true people of God were, to, were asked to believe that he was actually the king that he was actually sovereign, no matter what the circumstances look like. You and I, dear ones, today, no matter what the circumstances look like in life, that's what we're to believe today. That that little baby grew up to be crucified, raised from the dead, ascend on high, and he's coming back again to bring us the inheritance. Let us never forget that the baby Jesus is sovereign, no matter what the circumstances are and what they look like today. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Now let's begin... With number one, I want to talk to you about the significance of the firstborn. And how many in here remember reading your New Testament 
where Jesus Christ is likened to the firstborn. Most of you probably have read that. Think about Colossians 1.15. says that he is the firstborn over what? Over all creation. Now, does that mean somehow that Jesus came into being in a point in time? No, no, no. Don't make that mistake. Jesus is eternal, but the reason why God refers to him as the firstborn is because he is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn over the household of God, and therefore he owns all of the inheritance. And so what I'm going to show you is that this concept of the firstborn actually is derived from the culture of the ancient Near East, around really around the time of Abraham. And so what God does then is he uses this concept of the firstborn as an object lesson. He borrows it right from the culture, and he uses it as an object lesson to teach us two great truths about Jesus. That he is a firstborn like a priest, and I'll explain why that is. And he also owns the inheritance. And so that object lesson then is going to be proclaimed to the people of God. So let me first of all explain, though, where this concept came from in the ancient Near East. The firstborn, we find out in the ancient Near East, received a double portion of the inheritance. They received the father's blessing and received preferential treatment. So if you were the firstborn son, by the way, this only applies to the son, you were in clover. You had a great inheritance. You were going to have preferential treatment your whole life. But here's the most significant thing. The most significant aspect of being the firstborn in the ancient Near East was the fact that they were dedicated to their deity. Now, this is very significant because what it means is that the firstborn in that culture, if their father went away or perhaps their father died, they were now the priest for that family. That is the firstborn male. And so they had both the privilege and the responsibility of representing their family before God. They would pray for them. They would assure that they're taught well the word of God. And they would even give sacrifices on behalf of their family. Now, keep that in mind and think about how grievous it was, if this is true, that the firstborn has that type of privilege. How grievous was it that Esau sold his birthright? He sold his firstborn status, didn't he? And in Genesis 25, 34, remember it says that he despised his birthright. Why? Because he was willing to sell this great privilege to Jacob of representing his family before God. And what did he sell it for? Let's use a picture. He sold it for a bowl of beans. That's what he thought of his birthright. He was so flippant about his role as representing his family before God, he was willing to sell it just for a bowl of beans. Now, I'm going to come back to this. It's going to be very significant later in this message. But again, God, that is the God that we serve, borrows from the culture this concept of the firstborn to give us an object lesson. Jesus Christ is the firstborn, and he is therefore a priest, and he also therefore has an inheritance. Right now, what I want to turn to next, though, is that I want to show you, yes, God is similar. In other words, he uses some of the things from the culture of the day, but obviously he is far different than that which is in the culture. In other words, he's far different than the pagan gods, isn't he? Is everybody clear on that? So let me just show you what the pagan gods end up doing. The pagans end up murdering their firstborn to appease their gods. 
So, for instance, think about all of the gods back then. They had a god named Baal. They had a god named Moloch. There was another god in that time period named Chemosh. And if you were living in the culture of the day and you wanted to make sure you had a bumper crop, you would have to give your firstborn. Now, you would sacrifice other things, but if they didn't work, if the drought continued, you would give your firstborn. That's what they required. And, of course, this is heinous and evil before the true living God. But that's what the pagans believed. Let me give you an example of this. One of the gods that was worshipped by the Moabites was a god named Chemosh. And I'm going to show you a quotation here from 2 Kings 3.27 where he actually sacrifices his son to Chemosh, this king of Moab, because he's losing in battle to the Israelites and to the people of Judah and Edom. 2 Kings 3.27, it says, Then he, that's the wicked king of Moab, took his oldest son. Look at there. There's his firstborn who was to reign in his place and offered him as what? A burnt offering on the wall. He sacrifices him thinking, well, maybe that will appease my God. Now, the problem is the Israelites ended up going after the same type of gods, which was an abomination to the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 26, he says, I pronounce them, that is Yahweh, he's pronouncing his people unclean because of their gifts, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate. So think about how wicked it is to think that you have to offer your firstborn to make your God happy. What does our God do? He sacrifices his own firstborn to justify us. That's what kind of God we serve. That's how he loves us. And so what we see then is that there must be a substitute. And this is built into this concept of the firstborn. Let me explain why. I'm gonna get, I like charts, by the way. So I hope you don't mind. But here's a chart. I hope everybody can see it. So in the ancient Near East, if you served a pagan god, he would demand that you would give your firstborn plant. We call that a first fruit. He would ask for your firstborn animal, and that wasn't even sufficient. He'd also ask for your firstborn boy, just as Chemosh, Moloch, and Baal did. Now contrast that then with Yahweh. Yahweh comes on the scene, but Yahweh borrows from the culture, but he transcends it. He changes what we are to do with the firstborn, that is the people of God. So yes, Yahweh also demands the firstborn of the plants, that is the first fruits. He demands the firstborn of the animal. But when it comes to people, he gives a substitute. And we see that in Numbers chapter 3. Let me show you. Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, it says, Again, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. There's the idea of substitution right there. Instead of every firstborn, he says, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levite shall be mine. So let me bring you back now. Let's wrap this idea of the firstborn together. Let's go back to Esau. Esau despises his birthright, his firstborn status. He sells it to Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. In Exodus 4.22, what does Yahweh say? Of his people Israel, he says they are his firstborn. God takes his firstborn, redeems them, brings them out into the promised land, their inheritance, and they become a priest and tell all the world to tell the world that there is only one God and salvation is through Yahweh alone. So they become priests, but they fail miserably. Why? Because they're sinners just like you and I. 
And because they're sinners like you and I, it is not sufficient just to have Israel, but the promise of God was that the Messiah would come from Israel, God's true firstborn. And so Jesus comes as the firstborn par excellence. And as he comes into the world, he substitutes himself. He is not only a prophet that Moses prophesied would come in Deuteronomy 18. He is not just a king that would come in the order of David, but he's also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And how does he justify his family, the brothers and sisters that will end up trusting in him? By substituting himself. And so therefore, now he has the inheritance. And if you will trust in him, the inheritance of the firstborn belongs to you as well. And so as we read Hebrews 1.6, I think this is really rich with this type of imagery. Hebrews 1.6, the writer of Hebrews says, And when he, that's God, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, now here's Psalm 97.7, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Notice the angels are worshiping him. Do angels worship men? No. And what does that show us then? It shows us that, yes, the firstborn, it cannot be just a mere mortal. Whoever this firstborn is, it must be deity. And again, that proves to us that this Jesus, this firstborn, he didn't come into being in a point in time. He always existed as the second person of the Trinity. And so the firstborn status then is that he is the preeminent one who owns all things. He has the inheritance. Now, this inheritance then is given to us. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. The writer of Hebrews says, but you, by the way, that's every single one of us in here. That's every single believer. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of what? The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, what I want you to see on the screen, notice the term there, firstborn. Now, many of you might think, well, wait a minute, that's just a reference back to Jesus. If the firstborn here is Jesus, certainly the firstborn here must be Jesus. You might be able to say synonymously that this is the church of Jesus, right? The problem with that is the firstborn here is in the plural. And why is that so significant? Because that means every single one of you are regarded as the firstborn now. Not because you've done anything, but because you're with him. Because you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are now a son and daughter, and the inheritance belongs to you. You're now part of the firstborn before God. And the Apostle Paul, in fact, says that very thing in Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he's talking about his elect, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Here's the purpose statement. So that what? So that he would be the firstborn among what? A many brethren. Okay, now think about that idea of corporate solidarity. It doesn't matter, dear brothers and sisters, what you have done. It matters whom you're with. You are with Jesus Christ, and because you've trusted in him, what is the phrase that we see often in the New Testament? You're in Christ. And because you're associated with him, you're now a partaker of the inheritance, aren't you? So it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's who you're with. And that's why Jesus is so grieved with the Jews that he's arguing with during his ministry because they believe they are partakers 
of God's household merely because they're born descendants of Abraham. And so Jesus says to them this in John 8, 35. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. You see, the Jews had it wrong. They thought, well, we were born physical descendants of Abraham. Therefore, we're partakers of the household. What Jesus is teaching them, and especially in John 3, is no, you have to be born again. If you're going to be a son and daughter of the Most High and a partaker of the firstborn inheritance, you have to be born again. You have to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how you become a partaker. You're with him. Let me give you a little story to illustrate this. A couple weeks ago, my wife had a Christmas tea. And when she has a Christmas tea, it's only for her sisters and her nieces. And so it's only girls in the house. My brother calls it the hen house. And Will and I, it's the only day of the year that we are homeless. We're actually two little homeless hobos. And so we look for a home with my mom and dad. And my mom and dad are here. You can raise your hand. I love them. <laughs> so I call, I call up my mom, and she's shopping. And I call my dad. I said, I'm heading over, and he was out doing errands. But you know what? I can come into the home. Why? Because I'm a son. I'm a son, and I belong. But you know what? Little Will, he can come with. And I can bring him into the home. I can make him a peanut butter sandwich. I can take his shoes off, put him on my mom and dad's bed. Why? Because he's with me. That's the benefit you have in being in Christ. And the same privilege extends to my brother and his children and my sister and their children. Why? Because their grandchildren are with the son or the daughter. That's the relationship we have with Christ. And that is the inheritance that he has guaranteed for us. And that's why, dear ones, it is so significant and so weighty. The words in John 14, 2, when Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Brothers and sisters, if it was the case that there was no room for you, if there was no inheritance for you, what Jesus is saying is he would break it to you straight. If all you were when you died was so much fertilizer in the ground, the Lord Jesus would tell it to you straight. But the great blessing at Christmas is remember that God in this little baby sent his firstborn so that by trusting in him, you and I have a room for us in the Father's home. We are now the firstborn with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, no matter what circumstance you're going through today, and I know it's very bleak for the various reasons I've described earlier, remember the inheritance that you have. Let's remember that this Christmas season. Now, with that, let me move on to our second application, and that is we have to remember that Jesus, as he comes in the form of this little baby, truly God, truly man, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in the midst of all of our circumstances. And so I want to remind you of his kingship in a passage that my wife just read, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And I want to begin in verse 6 where it says, For a child will be born to us. Oh, by, by the way, before I go on, let us remember why is it that this passage is in this order. God is about to give, through the prophet Isaiah, a devastating rebuke to the people. And he's going to explain that judgment's coming. But before he does that, starting in verse 8, 
he explains this great promise. Even though I'm going to judge you, Israel, now, you're going to be the first to see messianic salvation. That's what he promises. So this is a great messianic promise. Verses 6 through 7, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, before I talk about this idea of him being both a child and also Mighty God, notice some of the other descriptors that are used of this Messiah. He's called Wonderful. And what I love about this term is that in the Old Testament, the term wonderful in Hebrew is Peleth. And it's used, for instance, in Genesis chapter 18. Remember where God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son? And they're both so old that, remember, Sarah laughs. And therefore, what's the son called? Isaac, which means laughter. But do you remember what the Lord's response was? In Genesis 18, 14, he says, Is there anything too difficult for Yahweh? And the term difficult there is the same term that I have circled on the screen, Peleth. The point is, he's not just a wonderful counselor. He's a miracle worker. He can do miracles. He can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can make dead wombs spring forth life. Why? Because he's God. And not only is he mighty God, but he's also, what, a little child. He's truly God, truly man simultaneously. And if he was not, you and I could not be saved. So what I want to do for a moment is I want to talk about the gospel. We talk a lot about the gospel, and I know all of you know it fairly well, but perhaps there are some here that are new. The gospel means good news, and it is the good news surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that work is appropriated to our lives. But I often say that the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. What's the bad news? That every single one of us has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, perhaps you're sitting in your seat and you think, well, you know what? I don't feel like a sinner. Don't worry about your feelings. The word of God has declared that you are. You're just like me. You're a sinner. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what are the wages of the sin? Death. Not only temporary, but also eternal. Okay, we see in Revelation 20, verse 15, that all whose names are not found in the book of life will be cast where? In the lake of fire. So this is very bad news. And that's why the good news shines like a diamond that is set against the backdrop of a black velvet case. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. <laughs> we need Larry here, too. <laughs> so the good news is this, that God in his infinite wisdom before the foundation of the world decided to send his son, the second person, the Trinity, who existed as God and with the other members of the Godhead from all eternity. And he humbled himself and became a man through a virgin birth. And as he became man, the reason that was necessary is because our first representative, Adam, he was our first representative, and his sin that he committed was credited to, to our account. So says Romans 5.12. When he sinned, you and I sin. But our new representative, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he lives the perfect life that none of us can so that his righteousness can be credited to our account by faith. But he doesn't stop there. This Jesus, who is truly man, truly God, also goes to a cross, and he dies a substitutionary death. 1 Peter 3.18 says he died once for all, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order to bring us to God. 
Now, how is it that he can provide such an atonement? Well, he's a man, so he can represent us. But he's also God, and therefore he is of infinite worth to pay off an infinite debt. And therefore he is what's called a propitiation. Propitiation is a fancy word that means he has appeased and satisfied the very wrath of God that you and I deserve to be punished with. He was buried in the ground after he died on the cross, and then he was taken up from the grave. And he says that no man can take his life, but rather he lays it down. He's able to take it up again, doesn't he? That's the kind of power that he has because he's God. He was raised from the dead on the third day, which vindicates all of his claims. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 1610, which said that the Holy One would not see decay. And then he ascended on he into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again to bring what? The inheritance. And what does he command us to do? He commands us to repent and to believe the gospel. Jesus says that himself. It's not a suggestion. It's not a helpful hint. It's a command. And the only way that any of us in here will heed it if, as if the Spirit allows, the Spirit draws. He commands repent, which means to turn. Make a U-turn in life and have a change of heart, saying, no longer will I serve my sin, myself, the things of the world, or any idol, but I'm going to come to God on his terms, trusting in Jesus alone. And if you will trust in Jesus alone, he will clothe you in righteousness so you can be before his holy presence, and he will remove your sins as far away is the east is from the west. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer. If there's anyone here that does not know the Lord, today would be your day. Today would be the day to repent and to believe in the gospel. So not only is this Messiah then truly God, truly man, not only is he our savior, but he's also a sovereign king. And that's what we see then in verse seven. It goes on to say, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Notice this Messiah, this child, he's going to be one day on the throne of David. So that means he's going to be a king. Now what I want you to realize is that this idea that this Messiah would be a king isn't just written by Isaiah onward, around 720 B.C. onward. It actually predates all the way back to the Pentateuch in the book of Numbers around 1400 B.C. And I want to show you an example of that, that the expectation was Messiah is king and if messiah is the king he is so sovereign over all things numbers 24 before i put it up how many here by the way have heard of balaam balaam was a pagan prophet who lived in the upper mesopotamian region and god uses him to give a true prophecy about the messiah that's what we're reading about here in numbers 24 17 through 18 balaam says this he says i see him that's the messiah but not now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be a possession. Now notice this Messiah who comes from Jacob, he's referred to as a star and a scepter. Now a star in the ancient Near East was a king. That's the imagery that they used. And that is also shown here by the term scepter. We all know that a king uses a scepter. So notice, where is the king going to come from? The king is coming from Jacob. Now, what is Jacob later renamed? He's renamed Israel, isn't he? So we know that this king is going to come from Israel. But notice that this king will put down his enemies, Moab, the sons of Sheth, but also Edom. Now, 
Where do the Edomites come from? They come from Esau, don't they? Let's go back to Genesis 25. I told you I would come back to that. Remember, Esau was the one who sold his firstborn status to whom? To Jacob. And it was before that they did anything good or bad in the womb that Jacob was chosen and Esau was rejected so that it was God's will, not man's, that the Messiah would come from Jacob. Now, what I want you to understand is when we transport ourselves back to the first Christmas, look at the situation. It's 4 B.C., we're in Bethlehem, and when Jesus is born, what is he? He's a descendant of Jacob. And therefore, he is the one who the scepter and the star belongs to. He's the king. But as he's born, who actually is the king at that time of the Jews in Judea? It's Herod. Herod the Great, and he's a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite. Well, now we have ourselves a conflict. Because Herod has the guns, or I shouldn't say guns, that's, an, that's, that's bad. He had swords. <laughs> that's an anachronistic, yeah. He had swords, didn't he? He had guys with lots of weaponry. And he was the one who was sovereign over the situation, or at least it seemed to be. Let me just show you a map. Notice where Bethlehem is. Remember Micah 5.2, the prophecy was Jesus, the Messiah, would be born where? In Bethlehem. Beth meaning house. Lechem is bread. He's born in the house of bread. So Jesus, the bread of life, is born in the house of bread. And by the way, he's buried not just on any day, but what? The feast of unleavened bread. So very, all very symbolic. So he's, he's born in Bethlehem, as prophesied. But notice just three miles to the southeast is something called the Herodium. And that is the biggest fortress of the time that Herod had built. And the idea that Herod had was that he feared Cleopatra, who was queen in Egypt, and he thought if she ever invaded, he thought, well, I'll make a run down from Jerusalem to the Herodium. Then I'll make my way out to the Dead Sea and follow that down to Idumea, where he came from. That's where the Edomites end up settling. So that's what he was going to try to do. Now, the reason I show you that is I want to show you a picture of it as it looks from Bethlehem. Look at the way the Herodium looks as you look from Bethlehem. Look how towering that is. And by the way, much of the superstructure would have been removed. And I want you to think about as Jesus is born and subsequently Herod comes down and he murders the children, where did the troops come from? They came from this mighty fortress. Can you imagine how fearful you would be of this Herod, this tyrant? And so if you were truly a believer, it seemed all of the circumstances in life were against you. The Romans ruled over Israel and Herod seemed to be sovereign. And it would have been absolutely terrifying. And yet a true believer was asked to believe that a little baby was actually the king. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Brothers and sisters, notice there's two different kings on this one, in this one passage. There's Herod the king, but there's also the king of the Jews. And the question is, which is the king? The people of God were in very dire circumstances. And it seemed that all the power and all the sovereignty was actually with Herod. When all the while, it didn't come from that descendant of Esau, 
but it came from the descendant of Jacob. Just as God had promised, that little baby boy in the manger was actually sovereign. And the reason I think this is important for us, dear ones, is you and I as a congregation have gone through some very difficult times. The circumstances seem to be against us. We are certainly not the power brokers in our nation. We are certainly not the power brokers even in the church that we left. But what we want to remember this Christmas season is that it's the little baby boy in the manger that he's still sovereign. That he grew up, he was crucified, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and he's now on high. And you and I can rejoice every day of our life that no matter what the circumstances appear to be, the baby boy in the manger that we're celebrating, he's sovereign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your great promises that we have in the scriptures, that we can live by them and not by sight. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that for my brothers and sisters this Christmas season, that you would give them a sense of encouragement through your word, that they may know that your promises are true, that they may persevere, and that they may know that they have a wonderful inheritance to look forward to. I pray for Bob and Jeff Alm and Ernie and so many others that are sick with very serious illnesses. Lord, I ask that you would, that you would heal them. But we also ask, Heavenly Father, that you would preserve them. Allow them to know that you are sovereign and allow them to know that, Heavenly Father, they have the inheritance because they're with Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, for our brothers and sisters at the other building. We pray for them. We love them. We pray for their perseverance. We pray for their well-being spiritually. And, Heavenly Father, we do pray that your will would be done in our body, our corporate body, Heavenly Father, that we would bring great honor and glory to your name, showing the world and the nations that you are the sovereign one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.